So Liam and I are here today to talk about some of the larger issues that is exemplified by uh, the recent OceanGate submarine sinking. And one of the major discussions around the internet has focused on kind of an, an individual framing of the CEO Stockton Rush being exceedingly reckless individual and the skirtings of safety regulations and multitudes of problems that basically, you know, plagued Ocean Gate until, you know, its current tragic ending with the death of the CEO uh, who was on the submersible, along with several guests and a veteran co-pilot who was a Titanic expert. Obviously, condolences to the family and loved ones of those that have passed away. But one of the major aspects of what struck me is how much this is not just simply about an individual that is reckless, but how it is an endemic feature of a lot of our businesses and also a lot of the way things are run in society just outside of this like specific incident in many ways. The whole mentality of Silicon Valley has been like move fast and break things. Mm. And the one aspect of just listening to the CEO talk about his company, it was very, he had very much adopted that mindset of innovation. What is often called innovation isn't really innovation in the bigger scope of things. It's mainly this somewhat like cost-cutting, labor-saving type of grounding that gets called an innovation. If that's a huge part of Uber, right, is that these, especially in, in the United States, where the vast majority of Ubers, they're not even employees, they're independent contractors, right? That's part of the reason why it's really hard with, to sue Uber, say, if like your driver assaults you or robs you, you know, things like that. It protects the company at the expense of both the driver, right? Because a driver doesn't get the standard employee protections of disability coverage and a guaranteed wage and in the health insurance and benefits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that employees would get. And also customers to a certain degree, the innovation, I suppose, is the convenience factor in many ways, right? But they are also not served in the sense of if something goes wrong, they have very little formal recourse. If you are in an Uber and the driver gets into an accident, right? And it's the driver's fault. Like, what do you do? Do you sue the company? The company's that's an independent contractor. I guess the thing is, with one angle on this, which is obvious, obviously discussed on Twitter and stuff like that, is that this is individual hubris. And then there's this other thing, which is it's not just the person's psychology or mindset or mind virus, if you like. It's also to do with this is what capitalism does, right? It's just like you said, move stuff, 
move fast, break stuff, right? But as a counterexample, if you think of Chernobyl, it has some parallels, right? Like it's not necessarily individual hubris, but it's systemic hubris, right? So it's not Chernobyl didn't happen under capitalism, right? You could say it happened under state capitalism. I guess it's probably true. But it's, is this, are these deaths that happened in this submersible, is it not just an indication of individual hubris, but systemic hubris? And that can happen potentially in any system. I don't know that I would call it systemic hubris more than systemic conscious neglect in terms of things like Chernobyl. Or if you look at, I would say like Chernobyl's not really necessarily a good, uh, a good example because something that happens under the public sector and something that happens in the private sector, you are looking at different laws and different regulations that yeah, and, and different systems that are working in those areas. But ultimately, we have a kind of an efficiency-minded society, right? Everything is quote-unquote run on efficiency. And to a certain degree, if you want to be brutal about what efficiency is, it is a certain minimalism, minimal staffing. Like you only hire just an barely enough people that you need to make things run. Yeah, but I guess the Chernobyl thing, why I think it does have some sort of relevance is that ultimately there are, in both cases, with the sort of engineering of this submersible thing and with the building of the Chernobyl power plant, there were individuals trying to tell people in power, this is a problem. You should be aware of this and people in power oh, deciding not to listen to that advice for right. X, Y, Z. Um, so is that? So I would so say, I that? would, so I would say actually, since we are talking, these are American companies, I would say a really good, a comparable thing to Chernobyl would be the Challenger disaster in the United States. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because again, like different countries different laws, different systems. So to do apples with sort of apples, you would compare the Ocean Gate to the Challenger disaster. And I would think that, yeah, like almost every single recall usually has a history of whistleblowers, whether we know about it publicly or not. It's one of those things where even Fight Club made a joke about it way back in the 90s. I don't know. Did you watch Fight Club? Yeah, I can't remember the joke there. No, no, but you know how they were talking about, there was a scene oh, about- the car insurance. Yeah. The recall. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. That if it is cheaper to pay off the families- You then, keep the car on the road. And it's one of those things. Where, yeah, like none of these recalls are, these corporations aren't doing recalls at, because they care about consumers. Much, much more is that one, they are in some ways coerced by various economic forces to do the recall. And sometimes those are generated by different agencies of looking at reports and whatnot. But these are never voluntary things in capitalism. Yeah. Right? The interesting thing with the Challenger example, though, is you would say that's a publicly funded institution and this was a private. Right. Uh, and that's thing. why I say like Apple to semi-apples. They're both apples in the sense that they were part of the, they're both American there is a similarity. One is private, one is public. But one aspect that I've heard a lot of people say about the Challenger, I do not have a whole lot of documentation aside from reading this over 
and over the when people talk about the Challenger disaster, but how the Reagan State of the Union and Reagan administration was pushing for the Challenger to go up, right? Because it looks good for the administration, it looks good on the country. Yeah. So like a similar certain ego aspect, whether it's administrative ego or whether it's the ego of the CEO. Yeah, I think the NASA thing was about the management, wasn't it, as well, pushing it. And they were probably, like you said, getting pressure from the state. But right. with this guy, I think what's interesting is Nassim Taleb has written various books, one of them, Skin in the Game. And he talks in that book about like engineers or architects, at least at some point in the span of human civilization, that there was this thing of if you were responsible for constructing a bad building that killed people that you yourself would then be killed. It's this idea of if you're not prepared to put like your own personal risk into a project, then things can fall, maybe fall apart. You don't care as much. Why the absence of personal risk puts entire systems in danger is an article that I was just looking up because this all just came back to me. But the thing is with this guy, he took the risk, right? He did have he had skin in the game. Like he, he wasn't sending randoms down there. He went down there himself. Uh, and, and, and the thing is, I think there is a sort of maybe Carl Jung looking version of looking at all of this, which is or, or Freud as well, like the death drive and like a magnetic pull towards a grave site, as it were, that there's something symbolically, psychologically, I don't have the sort of depth of knowledge or the vocabulary, but there is something a bit potent about this thing because it's sacrificial, right? Not only did the guy who believed, who didn't really believe in safety, kill himself, but he took a whole bunch of other people with him. And it's, to my mind, it's symbolic of that sort of CEO mindset of just a com their own kind of reality that they have in their head that maybe in, in a city, you can get away with being that deluded. I think it's the activities you. and it's the inherent risk of you know, what you do or what you subject others. Right. Right. In this drive. Because this guy clearly, since, I mean, in terms of like substance use disorder, one of the things that we always talk about with clients is risk assessment. And everyone's risk assessment is very different. And nobody has an even risk assessment, right? Most people are going to be like extremely risk intolerant in certain areas and much have a much higher risk tolerance in other areas. Yeah. It just makes me so, think of the whole Steve Jobs thing about trying to make a dent in the universe. And it's like, you take that same, you don't want a dent in your submersible, do you? Sorry. That's pretty dark. I might have to cut that. But that's, yeah, that's the CEO mindset. And I think it's one of those things where it's one thing to have extremely high risk tolerance in your personal life. Maybe like I used to know people that used to go freehand rock climbing without ropes. Right. Yeah. And to, to me, that would be like terrified of heights, very little upper, I have like little to no hand strength, much less upper body strength. It's actually one of those nightmare scenarios that I have like real nightmares about. And clearly that's not, this is, they clearly don't have the same kind of risk tolerance that I do. 
Because he has shown that he does have personal extreme risk tolerance in the sense that there was a interview of a father and son who was going to go on this trip that people died in. And they backed out at the last minute because the son had concerns after his friends started bringing up concerns after looking on the internet. And they had an interview on CN and there was a text exchange that was shown. And all these will be in the show notes. But the father was talking about how Stockton Rush flew to Las Vegas to try to convince him and his son to go. And what cinched the deal for him in not going was the fact that Stockton Rush arrived in Las Vegas on an experimental airplane that he made. And this customer, potential customer, he is, I guess he has a helicopter's license and is pretty well aware of air kind of safety basics, right? But he was just like, yeah, this is clearly a man that has a level of risk tolerance that is not compatible, ultimately. Do you think that there there are, maybe it's always easy to say these things in retrospect, but do you think that a person can be driven by, as far as I understand the death drive, that there is this thing about just to essentially escape from all responsibility, just fucking end it all. And do you think someone who has, for want of a better word, a little empire, do you think that there is some part of them that just wants to smash it all up and that that is part of them that they're not necessarily conscious of or in clear communication with? I've never seen people who have hubris and I don't like to use the word confidence because I don't see these behaviors as confidence. A lot of colloquial and understanding of confidence is more affect and bravado yeah. and like high risk tolerance, right? You're the guy that like goes charging into a burning building mindset when it comes to confidence. And for me, confidence is a skill of knowing your limits and knowing good delegation and knowing that you have the ability to learn yeah. that those skills are what makes somebody confident, not an affect or not machismo or not risk tolerance or all these things. So I don't like to use the word confidence in terms of these types of personalities because, again, Lucian Gate did have a whistleblower. Yeah. You know, he did openly talk about not wanting to hire experienced submarine industry people. And the, there was a lawsuit with a web whistleblower, right? He raised some safety concerns. And then I guess OceanGate hit him up with a, because he signed an NDA with his employment. And so they countersued him. And I guess they settled out of court is what it looks like. So I guess there is another sort of angle on this, is that this CEO clearly had spent a considerable amount of time, possibly his whole lifetime, in an environment that encouraged a certain way of thinking, right? Right. I think this is one of the things that's and that I've seen peppered like throughout the the online discussion have been how many people in the venture capital startup culture have said, oh, like this is 
the most common type of boss that I, I've come across in my time in that sector. They're all trying to be rock stars, right? Like paths carve their own way, carve their own path, as it were. And so you have to have a certain element of bravado to play the role, right? People have compared certain aspects of Ocean Gate to, to Apple and Steve Jobs. Mm. And I would think Steve, if Steve heard that, he would probably be rolling in his grave because one of the major things about the Apple dominance and the Apple quote-unquote like experience has been that Steve wanted to take Jobs wanted to take like a computer from an ugly beige box to something that was like aesthetically pleasing as much as functional. And nobody's going to look at the Titan and say, that's a really aesthetically looking with all these exposed wires. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Right. The Steve would be like, just on the aesthetic part, he would be like, oh my God, no, please. But I think, and the other thing as well is that this whole thing of it being the material was like carbon fiber and then it was an old fuselage from an airplane company like he was i don't know yeah it's just mad like the details that come out i'm sure everyone feels exactly the same probably everyone's read all this stuff but just the level of mistakes waiting to happen but this is the thing right again he had people working for him he had people telling him these problems but he didn't listen and the problem is i guess he didn't communicate that stuff to his passengers right they just believed his pitch it's one of those things where I clearly, these people knew they were taking risks. Just if you, if again, if you go freehand climbing, if you go base jumping, if you go wingsuit flying, skydiving, all these activities have, if you go climb Mount Everest, all these activities have a very certain death is part of the risk factor. That, that death could very, not likely, but possibly happen. That's why the, dis the waiver that they had to sign, I guess, mentioned like death multiple times throughout, like something like a couple times in the first page and like throughout the document. But at the same time, there is informed consent of somebody knowing that it is a fully experimental vehicle. Yeah. And... And knowing that these are some of there because there's there's a difference. James Cameron has gone in gone to the Mariana Trench with a Challenger Deep, and their Russians have been doing deep sea explorations with the Mir. But there is a difference between these are these have been certified and these have been under third party testing and regulation, and mm. they conform to. They conform to the knowledge base of what is now considered, you know, safe equipment in the industry. Because the industry is like now 60 some years old. Yeah. Not new. Right. And in that time, they have built up this massive information about good equipment. What is safe equipment? What is good equipment? What are good materials to use? And what was different about Ocean Gate was that quote-unquote, broke the rules, right? Yeah. That carbon fiber is not a materials expert, but just looking at some of the materials expert and deep-sea explorers talk about carbon fiber. Carbon fiber is not necessarily new in deep-sea exploration, but it is considered a disposable part. You don't keep reusing it. And again, like OceanGate, I believe this is their second or third 
carbon fiber hull. They also apparently one person that what that is experienced in deep sea exploration tweeted that the regulations and certifications there's only like some like 20 approved shapes most of them are spherical in nature and that ocean gates design just from the shape alone did not conform to safety standards much less the materials it was like several things in a row that- yes so these safety standards Right. In general, I'm wondering to what degree the podcast obviously talks about capitalism, right? Right. So to what degree is there a tension always between safety standards and capitalism? Because like I said, the Chernobyl example is under a different economic system, but safety things were ignored. So it's a issue that doesn't come about just because of capitalism. And in some ways you could say that, I don't know, if planes kept falling out the sky all the time, you're not going to get any customers, right? So you can see that safety would be an important priority. So I wonder what that is, like how those things are balanced and how much maybe of, maybe it is the fight club formulation of that. Yeah, we are just under the illusion of safety of all of these things, but calculations have been made that the lawsuit is less expensive than the recall. Any kind of system, if it is starting to be le- more and more dysfunctional, right? right? You're going to see more and more issues, for example, right? So if you think about trains, you rarely, never say never, but you rarely hear of trains derailing and killing people in Japan. But you do hear quite often about trail derailments in the United States. Yeah. And then the Chernobyl thing becomes a perfect example because that was very near the collapse. So these major issues in in the overall system do get reflected in those ways. So yeah, and not to say that Japan by any means is doing capitalism perfectly or anything like that. It is a country with a lot of issues and a lot of political issues. But in terms of train safety, because that is their major mode of transportation, and that is what the majority of the population relies on. And it is absolutely essential to the functioning of their economy. There is an importance and emphasis placed on trains running on time there safely, effectively, efficiently, and in a way that is not in this country. And in this country, right, we are a car-centered country, and you could say that some of the systemic issues that are getting reflected in t- terms of car culture in the United States is the collapse of bridges and like the infrastructure that surrounds cars. That's starting to go and fall apart in many ways. But again, yeah, it is one of, I think all these things are kind of part of that go, go move fast, break rules kind of mentality, right, is ultimately oppositional to a safety-minded culture. And it's also emblematic of efficiency culture, right? Because what is ultimately, what is safety? Safety is redundancy. It's having backups and backups and multiple ways of preparations for the worst case scenario. Yeah. And this It reminds me again of another thing that was in one of Nassim Taleb's books. I think it was in the Black Swan, the turkey thinking example, which is basically if you're a turkey and you're getting fed every day by the farmer, 
life is good, right? But then right. comes Thanksgiving. And the point being that there's a quote that the turkey's feeling of safety is reached at its maximum when the risk was at its highest. But so it's that idea that the future, you can't base the future off just repeated things that have happened in the past. And I'm just imagining maybe this guy, the CEO dude, just maybe he's just had a boulevard of green lights his whole life. So he has no reason to take safety seriously right. because he's untouchable. And it's also, we are a culture that does not really like respect safety as a general culture, even in terms of just say retail work, just the fact that like we don't have stick leave as a standard for like people in the food handling industry. The fact that hospital administrations are very happy to run hospitals on like bare bones, minimal nursing staff. Because you know, if you think about it, hospitals are literally like life and death kind of environments, high stakes, right? Yeah. And you have hospitals that are very happy to run. That's why you see nurses strike a lot of times. And a lot of nursing strike is because of staffing inadequacy. Yeah. And if you look at your own body, nature in general, redundancy right. is required for life to exist. Two lungs, two eyes, et cetera, et cetera. It's too bad that we only have one heart, one brain. <laughs> sure. For now. Every safety regulations are written in blood. Yep. Safety regulations were never top-down decrees, they were very hard fought by usually the workers themselves, almost always by the workers themselves. So this is absolutely not a safety-minded culture in general, and especially when it comes to a lot of masculinity and like male socialization. Right, yeah, because you've got to be the bold adventurer, right? He's slaying dragons. Right. Because it's one of those things where, generally speaking, high-risk activities are, are considered relatively, like, cool and masculine. Yeah. That, like, you go hang gliding and you do, and all these things, are they, that is part of some of the gender socialization aspect of our, our and many cultures, is that men go out and take these high risks. So, again... Somebody taking an in individual risk is one thing, right? Yeah. But somebody taking a risk that is somewhat misleading and misleading people about the risks, right? Because if I think Stockton Rush had presented his company as the, this high, extremely high risk, but also high reward adventure in many ways, then at least he would have been advertising and marketing more honestly. Yeah. But I don't know if this is the exact word that he used, but very the same meaning word he used. He said that his Titan was invulnerable, that for the father and son that backed out the CN interview, he said that Walking across the street was more danger. Wow. Right? That he was selling, despite the waivers, he was selling extreme safety. He wasn't saying this is a highly experimental 
vehicle. You might die in the process, but you will be part of history. So I want to take all the extremely high risk tolerant people, right? If that was his advertisement, then at least I don't know that would hold up legal waters. But yeah, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know about that. But at least it would be an honest marketing. But to go around talking about your your equipment is in the level of, of that level of safety, while also being very, it's because this is one of, if you look at various interviews, okay, this is somebody that talks out of the both sides of their mouth, right? On the one hand, safety issues are, you can't worry about it because it stifles innovation. He, again, not a direct quote, but it's more or less what he said in, in context and meaning. And he is, he talked about like risk being inherent and to life, which is true. Risk is inherent in life because he was just like, yeah, if you want to save, don't get out of bed. Don't leave the house. And at the same time, also telling all his clients how safe his equipment is. Yeah, I guess. So we recorded this episode that is going to be public way after this one, but it was called The Joy of Shaming Others Online. And it, we recorded it just a couple of days before this whole thing kicked off with the submersible. And it really, just watching everything online, it really was like, obviously I follow a whole bunch of left-wing things and there's all these sort of anti-millionaire, billionaire things. And a lot of them were very darkly humorous. But I was like, yeah, this is exactly this thing of the dark pleasure of the stuff that we discussed in that episode which is based on a paper, but yeah, patrons will be able to listen to it right away, plug it while we're here in this, in the dark zone. But the point the the thing that came up in that episode was the fundamental attribution error, right? Which is that, that you can blame the individual for being an idiot versus understanding the context of the situation that they're in. And right. I think that the thing is like the mistake I think is that that it's all on the CEO's shoulders. It's all on his shoulders. Like he's the idiot. And it's no, he's in a system in an environment which encourages this kind of risk taking to be worth something, maybe. Right. Like, he was a, he's a product of, to a certain degree, the startup culture environment. Fortunately, most startup companies are not selling life and death high-risk gear. Of that mindset, really, isn't it? It is the severe, right, and serious limits of those mindsets. Because imagine even if this guy was like a medical device CEO, like that would be equally terrifying. Yeah. Was it the Thanos or whatever it was called? Oh, yeah. The Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. That's another example of this kind of environment and culture that, that gets oftentimes rewarded, right? We don't hear about the people that get rewarded because they're out there running successful company or at least profitable. I shouldn't say successful. I should say profitable companies. And because they're also not selling like catastrophic potential equipment per se. Or at least if they are and if they're failing, right, we are hearing, we are probably hearing about it during the testing phase or if we hear about it at all, it could be like a lot of these things we don't hear about because it's like a very niche market and the companies are going down during the testing phase before things get to market. Because a lot of, a lot of startups don't succeed for a reason and a lot of 
what people have been talking about startup culture in reference to Ocean Gate. There was this one commenter, I can't remember if it was on Twitter or Reddit, where he was talking about how there was this, they were at a meeting, it was a software company meeting, and the main, the chief software programmer was just like, these are major problems with this app. If you do not fix this, this app is not going to work, period. And apparently the CEO was just like, you sound really negative, like you don't want to be here. And the guy was talking about how he was just like, I'm so low on the food chain. I can't even, I'm not even really there to say anything. And the guy like just didn't miss a beat and put in his resignation and walked out of the meeting. And he was just like, yeah, like within a month, the company folded and I was out of a job. Yeah. Right. Because the app just, they can get it to work. This sort of culture of surrounding yourself with yes people or like relentless toxic positivity. It's like you don't want that kind of toxic positivity when it comes to something like brain surgery (laughs) or getting on a plane. You don't want all the engineers to be these super bouncy people who never consider the possible negatives of things. So it's a really... Yeah, it's the kind of perfect clash where this sort of fake positive thinking, real world implications clash together. Some of the startup cultures and even like some of the corporate environments, right? I'm just like, this is a cult. Yeah. Not in terms of they don't necessarily control your life in the way that cults do. It's a little bit less, right? Because at least you have your own apartment and, you know. Yeah, but you get bombarded with the language of the cult, right? Like I was listening to some podcast thing today. A friend of mine is very much into this dating advice person. And what was fascinating about it, I had listened to it, was the use of financial language in thinking or self-conceptualizing yourself and other dates. Like it's this idea of renting and buying and assets and stocks. And it's, yeah. So it's not a cult in some ways, but it's a sort of, it's there. It's like radiation. It's everywhere. You go listen to a podcast you, and then you're confronted with this particular way of framing the world and individuals and how they interact with each other. It bleeds into everything. It is the sort of language of right. capitalist realism in your right. most well, intimate like, sphere. Yeah. The, the homo like, economicus mindset, right? Yeah. yeah. The homo economic is the portrayal of humans as Asians who are consistently rational and narrowly self-interested and who pursue their subjective defined ends optimally. Yeah, and that's why something like this case just shows how completely the rational part of us is a part of us. But it's like a yes and thing. And it's and there's something else that drives us as well. Many things, not just rationality. One aspect of this whole coverage was fixated on the human horror, human element, dramatic story of hubris and fall and the the search and rescue and almost a made for Hollywood type of coverage in the media. And, and there, there's a certain, it really picks on like the lurid fascination yeah. aspect, right? Ultimately, yeah, it is not a story of just an individual, but a product of the society and environment that he is not. Like, I don't look at this guy, Stockton Rush, and unlike, I think, a lot of people, I do not see 
a sociopath. Right. I just see somebody who is unable to take constructive criticism, who is unable to properly do risk assessment, right? Because that's a huge part of leadership, right? Leadership, if you have a leader that has like really skewed risk assessment, right, you're going to fail, whether that's you as an employee, you as a customer, or you as a investor, right? You're going to be failed oftentimes in some way if somebody has really bad risk assessment at the helm. And also, I guess maybe this doesn't need to be said because it's obvious and obviously lots of people have spoken about it, but it's that thing of his life and the people's lives on board were obviously seen of significant value relative to what happens a lot here is migrants are trying to cross the channel to get to Britain. And, you know, as far as a certain part of the population is concerned here, there's this unhumanness to them and they all deserve to drown. That's part of the maybe more extreme right-wing rhetoric is the invaders are coming. They don't deserve to be here. They're not human. Right. And it's okay if they drown. It's one of those things where, you know, we in the United States, Britain, in, in many parts of the world, the poor dying. It's not a story. It's an accepted daily reality. Yeah, it's like a, a naturalization of an economic system into some sort of Darwinian misunderstanding right. of Darwin. I know that London has significant issues with people who don't have housing. Yep. Rough sleepers, as you is the term that's used in Britain and the United States, especially the West Coast. San Francisco being like the media epicenter of the epidemic of housing issues and homelessness. But yeah, it's it can't walk around in a lot of cities without seeing and, and even suburbs. Right? I live almost an hour away from a city. And I see homelessness every single day. If, if I step out of my house to run errands, I see it. Yep. And sometimes in, I have been just minding my own business when somebody like was, I pull up to get gas and there is some, somebody having a seizure, clearly someone that has not had housing for quite some time, having this massive seizure. And so I'm trying to get ready to call 911 and, and, try to help out. Fortunately, the ambulance came, you know, somebody called before I did and started working on him. But those are things that I see and I'm not even in a city. Any sort of final thoughts or statements? And I think the aspect, the biggest aspect of what we can carry forward in terms of anytime these types of issues happen is to really, one, like advocate for safety in our in ways we can in our own community in our own industry right and also be a force of organization around whistleblowers that those are the people that are trying so hard and often being punished by job loss and lawsuits and everything you know of, of keeping people safe and that we do absolutely need a lot more protection for whistleblowers. Yeah, you know, on an individual level, it's often scary to push back against people with more authority than you. 
right. in general. And that's yeah. why organizing for policies becomes really important because we don't necessarily, we can't really just accept, expect. My call is not just like individuals, it is on you, right? But that we should work together to really change the policies around protecting whistleblower, right? That those are things that we don't just expect one person to do. And whenever safety issues are brought up in the news and in industry, any industry, that because these all kind of bleed together, right? It's not just safety issues in one industry are contained in that industry. Yeah. And to take these safety issues a lot more seriously in moving forward, because there is a lot more to these stories than one of individual hubris. Yeah. Yeah. And it is important to look at what can we do as people to help those that are trying to make things safer for everyone. We can't eliminate risks, right? But it's important to reduce unnecessary risks.